Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Michelle Schwarzy, who is at University of Wisconsin-Madison. We are approximately 100 miles from each other, um, but we are talking across the internet. Um, And today we are talking about her book, Recognizing Resentment, Sympathy, Injustice, and Liberal Political Thought. This was published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press, and it is a really interesting discussion and sort of interrogation of this idea of resentment, but I'm going to let Michelle tell us about that. I'd like to welcome Michelle to the New Books Network and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this project. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Lily. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for having me virtually, even though um, we're so close uh, in reality, as you mentioned. Um, I'm really excited to to chat about the book today. Um, As you mentioned, this is my first book, uh, and as I note in, in it, um, it's actually a very, very revised version of my dissertation. So um, it contains ideas I've been working on for embarrassingly like a decade now or something. Uh, and um, really, it's an effort to try to explore the role of resentment um, and initially violent passions and strong emotions in political life um, and to see when and if uh, it's possible to normatively justify resentment, what positive role, if any, it might play in politics. And so the argument that I make in the book, um, I take a history of political thought approach and look at um, some authors in the canon and some authors sort of off to the side, um, a little less well-known, a little more obscure, who initially developed this idea of sympathetic resentment and a particular kind of sympathetic resentment that I call spectatorial resentment and show how this um, really feeling resentment on behalf of other people can play a really important role in supporting justice in liberal societies. Um, And so that's the argument that I try to advance in the book, which I think is one that also has normative and contemporary relevance, despite the fact that um, all the thinkers in the book are, you know, old dead guys from the 17th and 18th century. <laughs> and and the old dead guys that you use primarily, and you have three that are primary, and then you have a couple on the side, as you note. Can you talk a little bit about who those three main interlocutors for you are, and you put them in conversation with each other, um, and also some of the other voices that you bring into that sort of in- interesting conversation that you've structured from the 18th century? Yeah, of course. So the reason, the motivation for turning to the three thinkers that I do, and those three thinkers are Bishop, Bishop Joseph Butler. David Hume and Adam Smith, so three thinkers really integral in this movement called the Scottish Enlightenment in the 18th century. Um, the I turn to these thinkers because I'm really interested in what they have to say about resentment. And they were all writing um, during the height of this debate about kind of the role of emotions and reason in sociability or the ability of people to live together well in large, diverse societies, um, which really starts being, I mean, it's discussed throughout the history of political thought, right? What is the best political regime? What's the, um, what should we look for in terms of thinking about what the best way to structure a political society is? 
But really in the 17th and 18th century, um, we start to see thinkers deal with strong emotions or, or passions as they um, would have referred to them at the time. And the role that they play in either um, uh, promoting sociability or in inhibiting it. And so the story that I try to tell in the book is how initially the first chapter is devoted to a lot of these thinkers in the 17th century um, and a bit in the 18th century, folks like Thomas Hobbes and Baruch Spinoza, some of the natural law theorists, um, like Hugo Grotius, and my favorite, uh, Samuel Pufendorf. My students always love uh, hearing his name, a, a famous Prussian natural law theorist. Um, and then uh, Bernard Mandeville, uh, um, an English uh, political theorist, but originally Dutch. And sort of the things that they have to say about how passions contribute to economic and political stability um, and how that transitions into this conversation in the 18th century of the really positive role that specifically one strong passion, resentment, can play in getting us to recognize injustice and uh, getting us to try to do something about it. So that's really why I focus on first Butler, then Hume, and then Smith. So Butler um, is the most obscure of these three thinkers. Um, in fact, usually when I say, oh, I work on Butler, Hume, and Smith, people say, it's really weird to include Judith Butler in this conversation, <laughs> which fair enough. <laughs> and instead, um, I, I have to clarify, obviously, that I'm talking about Bishop Butler, who's a really interesting, but admittedly um, pretty uh, uh, unknown figure in the history of political thought, an Anglican bishop who was incredibly important to the sentimentalist movement, to those thinkers in the 18th century who were interested in grounding moral rules and thinking about politics through um, the eyes of uh, emotions, through the role that emotions played in political life. And in particular, Butler was one of the first thinkers to not only argue that resentment had a positive role in motivating justice and um, providing for political stability, but that it was an innocent passion or an innocent moral motive um, that did so. That, so that's one way he uh, departs from some of his uh, 17th century and early 18th century predecessors are in fact contemporaries in the case of Mandeville. So I start by looking at him. He also plants the seeds for this really important concept that's in the um, subtitle of the book, and that is sympathy or what we would think of as empathy today, this concept in the 18th century of putting your, that's developed, um, uh, that we think of as putting ourselves in someone else's shoes and trying to imagine what they go through that's so important, again, for this debate about sociability. And so uh, Butler sort of sows the seeds um, of those two concepts that then Hume famously picks up on and also points out some issues with, uh, and really kind of the, the apex of the book or the culmination um, of some of these ideas uh, come to a head in the chapter on Smith, where you get uh, the full, where I fully describe um, what spectatorial resentment is, what it means to resent on other people's behalf, how sympathy facilitates that um, and moderates it in really important ways, as well as um, sort of what lingering problems might exist. So um, I'd say one, uh, maybe this is the academic in me, but one, one thing 
that's interesting about the book um, is that it's not totally a positive story or not totally a, a happy ending, I suppose, with the, the role of resentment in political life, but rather um, a story about exactly the promise that it can hold, but also some of the limitations, like um, sort of like anything, any more motive that you might think about um, in politics um, that exists, even uh, even with all this promise. And and one of the points that you sort of bring up as you're bringing the thesis forward is the fact that liberalism, classical liberalism, liberalism, in its many definitions, and, and as you also note in a footnote, there are many definitions. Um, and so just to sort of clarify that a little bit, but that liberalism is, is to be grounded in rationality. Um, and that, you know, the resentment, and as you talk about it throughout the, the book, sympathy or empathy, we're moving into this role of the passions or the emotions, um, which are sometimes problematic for our friends who have written about um, sort of liberalism. Can you um, explain a little bit about that tension and and how these thinkers and then some of the, the secondary thinkers that you're also talking about are trying to work emotions into liberalism? Yeah, so there, uh, in the introduction to the book, essentially, I say that I'm trying to get kind of involved in the debate about motivating liberal justice. So one criticism of the rational approach to liberal justice, which says um, that the the way that you can motivate uh, or the way that you can figure out what our duties are um, to other people in a liberal society, which has sort of minimal political commitments other than this commitment to procuring uh, security for all people, freedom and security uh, for people, that, um, that that kind of society might have trouble motivating people to be good citizens or to, um, to do, uh, to, uh, excuse me, to do their duty in other respects in um, political life. Um, and so what I try to suggest in the book um, is that one thing we might turn to, and this is in the uh, in the vein of a lot of literature that sought to bring the passions back in, like Rebecca Kingston's work on this front, um, Sharon Krause's work on this front, um, has sought to uh, to find a way that we might incorporate passions as motives for various political duties um, without. Uh, uh, not without, but I'd say while sort of moderating their more troublesome or worrisome effects. So if you think of things like anger, you think of things like resentment, you think of things like grief, all these very powerful emotions that can motivate us to do different things, they often have kind of secondary problematic spillover effects. And so if you're concerned with uh, those spillover effects, or moreover, if you're concerned with um, what the principle is for motivating a particular duty. Like we need to be able to motivate uh, a duty to justice or to be just based on a rational principle, as someone like Kant would say, or someone I discuss in the book as well, uh, Martha Nussbaum's recent book on anger and forgiveness. 
sort of argues one of the reason that reasons that resentment is problematic is because it's this immature passion. Even if it wasn't, even if we didn't worry about the spillover effects, um, that we would still worry about it as the as a good motive or universalizable motive for justice. And uh, what I try to address in the book is that these passions, um, in some cases, can have these either problematic spillover um, effects, uh, or they can have these problematic spillover effects, excuse me, but these are in certain circumstances. And one of the benefits in particular of sympathy, of being able to put yourself in other people's shoes and adopt their emotions is the kind of natural moderation that happens in that process. So the focus of the book is um, what Stephen Darwall has called second personal resentment or the resentment that you feel on behalf of another person. And that's this kind of key uh, to, to being able to give you some perspectival distance and therefore some natural moderation rather than the anger or resentment that you would feel on your own behalf that traditionally liberals tend to, tend to worry a lot about because of either those spillover effects or some of the, um, their concerns with uh, irrationality of emotions. And, and so I wanted to ask you um, to also define this term that you use through the book, and I had to try to say it um, before I started talking to you, um, spectatorial um, <laughs> resentment. Um, I wanted to make sure that I, I had all the syllables correct. Um, and and I, I mean, I have a sense, and you, you explain it in the book, but for people who are listening to this conversation, can you talk a little bit about that? Because you were just sort of leading into it as a second person um, resentment uh, and, and how that works within the sort of context of liberal thought. Yes. Yeah. So to start, um, what I, when I was talking about second personal resentment, the, again, the key that I mentioned or the key um, faculty that enables second personal resentment is sympathy for a lot of these thinkers. Um, or again, what we would consider empathy, the ability to adopt emotions on behalf of another person or to approximate those emotions. And this can be everything um, from something as simple as seeing someone else smile and feeling happy by um, sort of contagion sympathy is what we usually refer to that as, or something more um, as complex as adopting a character in a play's grief. Um, at the loss of a partner or a child or something like that, um, based on the information that you know from the story and from spectating and watching the play. Um, so what really Smith does in developing this concept of sympathy, because he's the thinker that really gets you the most comprehensive and complex understanding of sympathy, is he builds on a notion of compassion or pity that was somewhat popularized in the um, 18th century. Pity we can think of um, as being especially important to thinkers like Rousseau um, and some other French um, political theorists, but says it's not when we feel with other people, it's not just that we feel bad for them, or it's not that we, uh, we only feel sadness and grief. Instead, sympathy is really much more cognitive, um, kind of interesting for someone to say this in the 18th century. There's a lot of contemporary work in psychology and experimental economics that 
picks up on Smith because of this, but essentially says sympathy can be um, uh, feeling with other people you know, on a whole range of emotions from grief to happiness, to anger, to resentment, importantly, to gratitude. We can feel uh, a host of emotions with other people. And it's really good for the most part that that can happen because that allows for us to connect with other people in a way that simple sort of rational interaction might not. It also causes some problems for Smith, most notably. Um, he And kind of maybe interestingly for your listeners who are less familiar with him, uh, I'm think of him more as the father of modern capitalism. I always tell my students, you know, they think of him as like a monocle wearing uh, capitalist, which is funny because of course, Wealth of Nations is just a um, polemic against mercantilism and against uh, um, uh, monopolies. But uh, that, that tends to be the character of, of him that we get today. And really um, Smith accounts for much of our um, motivation to uh, sort of push ourselves in commercial society, political ambition, economic ambition, because of this weird king, uh, uh, quirk with sympathy, which is that we tend to sympathize with the rich and great because we see all their wealth and riches and imagine ourselves in those situation, uh, situations and think of how great it would be. And so it's easier to sympathize with them. And then we try to work to uh, gain the same wealth, even at the expense of our happiness sometimes. So just kind of an interesting side note on the fact that sympathy, despite the fact that it really is going to have um, enormous beneficial import in terms of uh, social stability, political stability, economic stability, um, isn't wholly um, unproblematic for Smith um, because of some of these other moral complications. But the story that I try to tell about it is that sympathy allows for us to adopt the resentment that victims of injury feel um, when they're harmed by other people. And importantly, according to Smith, when we do this, when we go through a sympathetic process um, and try to come up with moral judgments, we need to think through the situations that they themselves are in, think through the situations of the criminal that harmed them, consider what the injury looked like, whether it actually is an injury rather than a harm, um, go through this entire process. And if we adopt their sympathy and approve of it, think it is merited, then we actually call for rectification on their behalf. So a number of really important things in that process of sympathetic resentment, which becomes spectatorial resentment when it is done through um, this moral judgment process that I'll mention more about in just a quick second. But when we engage in sympathetic resentment with other people, we importantly are connected to the victim. We're alive to injustice in liberal societies in ways that we wouldn't be if we simply rationally considered the situation. And because of that uh, push to call for rectification of injustice, once we adopt the resentment of a victim, we actually are motivated to do something about injustice. So sympathetic resentment has this really important potential to connect us to other citizens in liberal societies, to focus us on injustice, and to motivate us to do something about it. All really critical parts um, of a liberal view of justice and injustice. And I should say, 
one of the secondary um, thinkers that I'm perhaps most indebted to in my view of liberalism and what I think is sort of missing from it and what these thinkers can help address is Judith Sklar, who I talk about in the introduction to the book, um, who really sees the purpose of liberal justice as minimizing cruelty, not simply minimizing harm as uh, uh, obviously John Stuart Mill would have it, but minimizing the potential for cruelty, which really requires us to take a careful look at misfortunes and uh, bad things that happen in society and consider when those misfortunes might become injustices, that is, when they might become active injuries that we can do something about. And so I think sympathetic resentment allows us to be able to do that thing. One last note, when sympathetic resentment becomes spectatorial resentment, that mouthful term <laughs> that, I, that I use for Smith, is when not only we adopt the resentments of other people, but when we think they are merited or justified. And the process of figuring out how resentments are merited or justified is a particular one for Smith, but a really important one. It's based on what he calls his impartial spectator, um, or what we call his impartial, impartial spectator theory, that says moral standards or norms what, how we know something is right or wrong is based on our not only sympathy with another person, but our imagination and what we think an impartial observer would judge of the circumstances if they were fully informed and if they were able to sympathize with all parties. So it's not just would your friend or would your parent or would someone close to you in your society approve of what you're doing, but would an impartial observer who was fully informed about the circumstances and capable of, of sympathizing with everyone, would that person approve or disapprove of the circumstances? So it really is Smith's way of explaining how some resentments, in fact, might be unjustified or how some resentments um, we might have to drop or consider, uh, consider unmerited Based on um, based on the judgment of an impartial spectator, and, <clears throat> and and part of what you're describing are also some of the um, uh, ways that Socrates um, sets up. I, I mean, the way that you're sort of mapping this out is what Socrates sort of sets up in Book One of of the Republic in terms of these different sort of understandings of justice. Is it just your friend who you feel, you know, sort of sympathetic with, or, you know, can we do that for the whole society? Um, and, and so I, I'm seeing echoes, quiet echoes of, of the various um, sort of interlocutors that Socrates contends with in book one. Um, I don't know if I, I'm sure that was part, possibly you sewed that in. I don't know. No, that's, you know, that's really interesting. No one has ever brought up the, you know, you're talking about Polemarchus, right? The Polemarchus's view of justice from book one of the Republic, that you do good to your friends and harm to your enemies. And that's, that's what justice consists of. Um, I think it's just a really powerful and intuitive view of justice that thinkers throughout the history of political thought have had to grapple with. And really in the modern era, you see lots of different ways of trying to figure out what impartiality could look like, right? So prior to Smith, you have Locke. That's almost, in, in my reading and understanding of Locke, right, that's the fundamental question for him. How do you set up an impartial judge who can adjudicate between rights disputes, right? You need some sort of person 
who doesn't just have their own interests and their own uh, rights in mind, but somebody who would be able to um, to impartially determine these uh, the outcome, proper outcome of these disputes. And for Smith, and in fact, a lot of sentimentalists, um, one looming threat in the background is always uh, relativism. So kind of the thing that, uh, um, I mean, Polemarchus isn't relativist, but uh, if you have a, a moral theory that's based on um, spectatorship, that you say norms are created um, by other people's judgments, well, how do you know um, that you're not just subject to the judgments of a particular time or place or what have you? And so the question of impartiality becomes especially important for sentimentalists in, in the Scottish Enlightenment. But I think you're right. It's that, that question about what justice consists of and if it's anything other than just um, partiality, being partial and doing partial good rather than a general good or an impartial good um, is, a, is a question throughout the history of political theory. And yeah, I, I mean, I did want to put you on the spot with regard to chapter book one of of, of Plato's Republic, but you know, political theorists always are talking about that. <laughs> you know, gotta throw it in. Um, but you you've talked a, a, a lot about Smith because, as you know, Smith is kind of the apex of your theory, and you've talked about Bishop Butler, not Judith Butler, so we're all clear on that one. Um, but you also spend a, a good chunk of your work on Hume, um, and so and he seems to be sort of the the transitive property between these two um, thinkers in the the main thinkers that you're looking at. Can you talk about? how Hume is the sort of connection between Butler and Smith. Yeah, of course. Hume is in some ways the most complicated uh, thinker in the book, or his thoughts on resentment are the most um, complicated and uh, and mixed of any thinker um, in the book. He, like Butler, though actually Hume and Butler famously had some, some personal disagreements um, uh, along with Hutchison, you know, Hume didn't have uh, a, a lot of uh, a lot of friends and advocates other than Adam Smith um, when it came to uh, uh, came to Scottish politics and university politics, um, which is why he he never had a position as a professor um, during his lifetime. Um, but similar to Butler, interestingly enough, given that Butler was an Anglican bishop. Um, and Hume is uh, probably the most infamous a- atheist from the last few um, hundred years. They both are interested in grounding morality on sort of naturalistic grounds. So Butler will come back and say that this is approved of by God, or this is proof of God's goodness, is that we have these um, natural capacities that make us moral. Um, but uh, but Hume, but he's full, fundamentally interested in grounding them in are uh, a kind of naturalistic view of morality. And Hume obviously does a similar thing um, and is interested in developing that in um, the treaties of human nature, especially. But Hume is also interested fundamentally in his political works um, and his economic works in stability, right? This is one of the reasons that I think he often gets read um, correctly or incorrectly as a conservative thinker, um, is that, you know, it's all well and good to have some of the more polite and humane virtues and to have uh, uh, sort of more, uh, a more extensive liberty, but fundamentally Hume is also concerned about uh, security, right? If you don't have um, uh, 
a state where you have some kind of political stability and importantly, where you can prevent the worst um, people in power from doing what they want, um, then then you're not going to ever achieve any kind of modicum of political liberty, which is really the story of um, his six volume history of, of England. Um, uh, and so Hume has kind of a mixed relationship with resentment. Um, famously, his theory of justice is based or considers justice an artificial virtue, which for Hume means that it has no basis in an original motive or natural motive. Um, And yet at the same time, he tells us that all virtues to be virtues have to have some natural uh, basis or motive. Otherwise, um, we wouldn't be motivated to do them and therefore they couldn't be called virtues. Um, And so it's a bit of a, a kind of confusing theory, challenging theory to work through which is people of uh, commentators in the past have often referred to the motivational deficit in Hume's theory of justice. Um, and one thing that I try to do is reconstruct the um, development behind what I think is really the emotion behind um, justice for, for Hume. And that is something he calls the common sense of interest or sense of common interest. This idea that really uh, Russell Harden has talked about it as social trust, that we feel um, that other people see the, see the advantage of cooperation, that we can trust them to perform um, their commitments. Um, and that, that But it's not a rational understanding of anything. It's really just a, um, that we have to feel that kind of trust for society to work. And so in the chapter, I try to explain what's behind that. And I think importantly for Hume, resentment has uh, a big role to play there. He talks a lot about this in the uh, restatement of parts of uh, book two and book three of the treatment uh, of the treaties of human nature, um, which is published a little bit later on called The Enquiry Concerning the Principles of Morals, which actually in Hume's little brief autobiography, he uh, referred to as his best work. He thought it was his best work, interestingly enough, which is not what the scholarly consensus is, I don't think, but um, it's a fun book to read. Um, so is the the eight-page autobiography, My Own Life. Um, uh, that's where he also famously says that the treaties of human nature fell deadborn from the press. So he's got lots of little tidbits about his, his publication history. Um, but the inquiry concerning the principles of morals, he really talks about the role of um, resentment and how it, uh, how when we treat um, people or when we uh, consider people as objects or subjects of resentment, we really consider them as subjects of uh, justice. So it's almost sort of in line with what Rawls has to say. And of course, Rawls um, uh, in the 20th century adopts Hume's circumstances of justice, what they're uh, what human beings need to need to be like to be subjects of justice, that we need to have limited benevolence, that there needs to, needs to be some amount of scarcity for justice to be relevant. Um, and I think one thing that Hume also talks about that, that's important is that when we resent other people, when we recognize that other people are capable of making their resentment um, have an effect on us, we consider those people subjects of justice. Otherwise, we sort of exclude them as um, unequals. Um, and when we do that, right, we don't consider them free and equal persons to use the Rawlsian language, and we don't consider them subjects of justice. So really resentment reveals um, kind of both the background behind the 
emotion, um, I think, that undergirds justice for Hume. And also it um, shows a really important thing. And this is what links him to Smith is the, um, the importance of individuals who can adopt each other's resentments, um, that their status or standing with one another is relatively equal. So one key part of spectatorial resentment um, that I emphasize in the book that, that begins with Hume, but again, finds kind of its uh, most full uh, defense in Smith is this notion that when you adopt someone else's resentments, you are recognizing them as a relative moral or political equal. And that kind of recognition of someone's fundamental equality is really important for liberal societies, for liberal societies that are committed to um, not only freedom, but equality. So you find that uh, that um, kernel of an idea in Hume with his discussion of resentment that, again, Smith really develops. Another really important thing I think Hume um, discusses is what we, what we were just talking about, actually, the threat of partiality um, that Smith ends up addressing through impartial spectator theory. But Hume is famously quite concerned with what he calls our strong love of relations, this idea that people who are closer to us in space or time or social distance, um, we are just naturally more able to sympathize with, to, um, to feel things with, to defend, etc., and that actually that can be a really bad thing <laughs> for, for large, diverse societies, right? That that kind of partiality can threaten sociability. So um, again, in his history of England, you find a wealth of examples um, on that front. Famously, the uh, issues that he sees with factions, um, political parties, and pr- particular kinds of political parties, um, but also great rulers and our tendency to follow great rulers. So uh, the uh, third and fourth um, volume of the history of England um, talk a lot about this, about sort of the Tudor realm and prior to that. And you have Henry, <laughs> who is really acting on all of his personal resentments. And you have a court that kind of um, uh, adopts all of those resentments uh, without any kind of deliberation or reflection then you can have really, really bad outcomes. So Hume actually explains, I think, what some of the real pitfalls of even sympathetic resentment can be if you don't have some means of identifying which kinds of resentments are good or bad or partial or, um, uh, and how you might mitigate those. So there's, there's a need to be able to sort of sort through the resentments so that there are ones that are legitimate or just and ones that are potentially corrupting or or bad or undermining, as you note, the sort of sociability of large, diverse um, uh, institutions or regimes, uh, societies. Um, and, and so I, I wanted to, to get you to explain a little bit more um, because most of us, when we think about the term resentment, it's a negative valence, right? Um, and and so what you have argued, and, and again, the whole time I was reading your book, I had to keep rethinking my idea of what the word means, the word itself means to me, and how I can sort of see it in a positive 
venue and in, in a positive way. And and I understand the way you're talking about it, but it, it is kind of pushing a little bit against our, our usual line of thought. Um, so I would love for you to explain um, how to rethink, I guess, um, our understanding of resentment and how it, it really is, as you argue, can be used for the, the good of all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks. That's, I mean, I think that that's everyone's initial reaction, right? At least in, um, in American culture, that tends to be our reaction, in part because I think we associate resentment with a kind of unreflective anger on our own behalf. So um, most, most commonly recently, recently, right, when we think of contemporary American politics, um, and contemporary American political discourse, we talk about grievance politics and racial resentments or rural resentments. My colleague here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Kathy Kramer, wrote a great book on the, um, uh, the politics of resentment um, and sort of Wisconsin politics and the rise of Scott Walker, um, where she argued that the resentment of, and she doesn't mention whether it's justified or unjustified. Kathy isn't a political theorist. She's a, um, uh, uh, she studies American politics. So she tried to figure out what was going on. And she said, really what's happening is people in um, other parts of the states and rural areas of the states resent the urban centers, especially Madison, where the university is and where the capital is and think that it's get, it gets all its resources so the politics of the state has been characterized by resentment and anger and a rejection, um, an interest in sort of foiling all of the plans of the urban liberal elite um, that it thought was taking resources away from it, right? So that's one example of resentment we often talk about in uh, American political discourse today, the racial resentment um, um, of the populist right or the Republican Party more broadly, right, and how that might drive white identity politics today. But what I try to do in the book um, is explain how resentment or indignation against wrongs done, one doesn't need to have a negative or irrational effect, that is, doesn't need to have the um, connection to say, violence or punitive actions that are irrational or disproportionate that we often associate with things like rural or racial resentment. And two, that resentment can actually be an appropriate reaction to injury. I think one of the things that we lose when we um, give in to the idea that all resentment is, is rural or racial resentment, that it's unthinking or it's unreflective, um, that it leads to violence, is we forget that there are lots of people in liberal societies that actually do suffer injury, right? And, or they suffer injustice. Um, and if we don't do anything to try to recognize what that injustice is and really feel it, really understand emotionally what victims of injustice are going through, then we're going to be unlikely to try to do anything about that injustice, right? Um, or at least that's what I think a lot of these thinkers who advocate for spectatorial resentment um, tell us. So I, I start the book actually with a vignette um, from the civil rights movement um, with Martin Luther King uh, and him writing to um, John F. Kennedy to sort of plea for uh, the publication of a second emancipation proclamation that shows that Kennedy and the administration understands the justified anger and resentment of 
Blacks across the South who had suffered through Jim Crow for the last hundred years, who had been subject to police violence, to uh, violence from their neighbors and fellow citizens with impunity um, for, I mean, effectively since the beginning of the Republic. But let's say, obviously, they're, they're trying to say we should be full citizens according to the law, and we aren't. And it isn't uh, enough to just have these the formal legal um, recognition um, of, uh, of our status as citizens, but we really need you to show that you feel and adopt um, our resentments, right? The fact that we have been wronged, that we are actual victims of injury. And famously, um, in, a, in a speech that he gives after the Birmingham campaign, um, uh, Kennedy does exactly this, right? Tries to use um, the language of uh, resentment and adopting um, emotions of other people, but is especially, um, I think, powerful after a lot of the images from uh, the Birmingham campaign and the Southern Christian Leadership Conferences, uh, other other campaigns throughout the South, and the violence that was used against these uh, nonviolent protests, that that's exactly what the rest of the country right is grappling with, that they feel these emotions of indignation and resentment on behalf of uh, Black citizens in the South, and they want something to be done about it right? Perhaps for the first time, or they want at least something, they don't like to see these, these, uh, these images that they do, right? So I think if we assume that resentment has violent um, effects, or that it always leads to irrational or disproportionate um, uh, consequences, then we um, miss the potential for actual uh, restitution rectification of wrongs and real justice or reparations even to be made on behalf of victims of injury. And we miss um, something that uh, Amiya Srinivasanan um, uh, has written a lot about, which is um, affective injustice and the affective injustice of not allowing victims of injury to be heard. So one really wonderful um, facet of spectatorial resentment is that it is like the title of the book suggests, it is recognizing the resentment of victims of injury. And that in itself is um, an important kind of duty, you might say, of liberal citizens, that it's not, it's not simply that we should prevent injustice, although that is, um, uh, that is a uh, primary duty, but it's also that victims of injury and, uh, and historical injustice have a right to be heard, and that um, spectatorial resentment really allows that uh, to happen, really focuses on curing um, the concerns of victims of injustice and trying to deliberate about them, trying to adopt them. Um, and one of my students this past um, spring wrote her capstone on um, truth commissions, um, which is you know ex- exactly what you're talking about, is, it, is the commission doesn't necessarily um, have a role in making policy, but it does have this role, as you note, in actually hearing the, the, the suffering of the victim, hearing the injury that the person or people experienced um, so that that is a form of justice um, and, and possibly leading as, as they're often known truth and reconciliation commissions. So leading in the next direction, but you noted 
also that it's not a completely positive ending. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so I would love not, you know, not to spoil anything. So people should definitely buy the book. Um, But what, what is it that again is not solved by um, spectatorial resentment? Yeah, I think the, the, um, problems really that kind of plague um, the possibility for spectatorial resentment are just problems that maybe plague liberal society more broadly or contemporary liberal society more broadly. Um, So what I talk about in the book is the ways that essentially sympathy, this is one way you can think of it, is the ways that sympathy can be limited and as a result that our capacity for um, sympathetic resentment or ideally spectatorial resentment can be limited. So one of those um, is growing economic inequality. Again, maybe interestingly for for your listeners who are less familiar with Smith, um, he famously uh, was against what he calls an early draft of the wealth of nations, oppressive economic inequality, which is really extreme economic inequality when you have such a chasm between the different social classes that they're unable to actually sympathize with one another. And because that's fundamentally how we are capable of becoming moral persons, of making moral judgments for Smith. If you have that uh, divergence and you have that lack of communication, then really what happens is you you push the poor into obscurity and you sort of do them another injustice besides um, sort of uh, preventing them from having uh, material well-being, right, or or um, other uh, other sort of economic um, uh, measures of flourishing. But fundamentally, you make them unable to be subjects of sympathy with other people, to sympathize with one another. And that can prevent, say, the rich or um, people who are more well-off in society from actually being able to adopt that resentment. So that's just to say, when you have a society that is so stratified and um, where there are such deep divisions between classes... um, that they might not be able to uh, sympathize with one another, to identify with one another, then you really cut off the potential for sympathetic resentment, for spectatorial um, resentment, right? Um, I think the other risk um, is this risk of allowing sympathetic resentment um, to not develop into spectatorial resentment, to just adopting the partial resentments of your tribe or your family or your race or your class or what have you, not um, uh, not going through the difficult um, uh, task of actually trying to sympathize with diverse others, which Smith um, thinks you need to do to try to uh, paint this picture of who an impartial observer is, but who nevertheless it really is difficult for us to um, uh, to identify with, or it's difficult for us to imagine what an impartial per, uh, uh, perspective would look like in certain circumstances. Um, so I think really the keys to the, the limitations to, um, to spectatorial resentment really lie in the ways that sympathy is limited in, um, in liberal societies. Um, and, and on that happy note, um, <laughs> What are you working on now, Michelle? Well, probably because I got um, so interested in uh, uh, Schlar's view of liberalism as I was working on this book, um, I am now 
starting to work a little bit more on a project on her view of liberalism, which is very in vogue right now, I think because of our um, particular political moment, the rise of authoritarianism, the sort of realistic view that people um, want to want to have uh, for politics and also you know the continuing debate about whether liberalism still has any relevance um, or whether there's whether we're able to save it from itself, whether it's worth saving that kind of conversation I think that we're having not only in political theory but in um, in political science and in uh, and in uh, uh, popular discourse more broadly. And I think Schlar has a lot to say um, about how we can have a grounded liberalism, again, that is interested in minimizing or sort of not to, to use Berlin's distinction, not quite a negative conception of justice, uh, but one that really is interested in the quite difficult task of minimizing cruelty because human beings are so... It's so easy to be cruel to people who we determine are different than us in any way or another. And it's so difficult to uphold um, liberal principles against that. So I think there are uh, like a lot of um, a lot of uh, political theorists who are turning to her. I think there's really um, something uh, worth worth finding and worth defending um, that Schlar helps explain. Well, I, I look forward to that book and talking to you about it on the New Books Network when it comes out. Um, And I would love to thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network to talk about Recognizing Resentment, Sympathy, Injustice, and Liberal Political Thought, published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press. Michelle, is there a brick-and-mortar store with an online presence that you would like to give a shout-out to? Oh, yeah, there's a great uh, brick and mortar store here in Madison called A Room of One's Own independent bookstore here that um, has an online presence you can order the book from. Great. Thank you so much for joining me today, Michelle Schwarza. And it's great to have you on. Thanks for having me, Lily. Mm-hmm.